Hi, this is Amy Austin, host of A Time for Thrill. This month, I have the great pleasure of interviewing author Rachel Heron. I appeared on her podcast, oh gosh, maybe like a year and a half ago. Uh, We were introduced by some mutual friends. Um, Who knows? (laughs) When? Maybe 2019. That sounds about right for everything these days. 2020 is a wash. And... I think Rachel is sort of fascinating. Um, You will hear about her whole life in this podcast, but I mean, she was like a 911 emergency dispatcher, which is like freaking fascinating. I mean, that's just like, like, I mean, you know that people are there because if you dial 911, somebody answers. Um, But the number of people I've met who have that job is exactly one. And it's her. So Rachel fascinates me. She um, went to school for writing, teaches writing, has written romance, has written memoirs, and has written crime fiction, which is in knits, which is like four random things we have in common. Um, and she's so lovely and delightful to speak with because she has thought a lot about writing, the writing process. And it's sort of interesting to get a perspective on that because I guess I must think about writing and the writing process often, but um, maybe not every day because every day it just feels like sometimes a job and you just do it. I don't know how much I spend time thinking about it when I'm actually just doing it. But uh, Rachel has thought about it and does it, and I really like her books. Um, I'm going to link to them in the show notes, but she has in, I, she writes crime fiction differently than I do, but it's riveting and fascinating nonetheless. Um, it's something, there's so many things, like even in this book, but I don't want to talk about it because I hate spoilers, and I wouldn't want to spoil it for any of you who happen to read it. But she's a great writer. Uh, she has um, some new books out, and she'll talk about all of these uh, in the episode, and they will be included in the show notes. So I, this is such a great interview. Um, I love speaking with her, and I know that you'll love hearing all about her life and times and writing. Without further ado, author Rachel Heron. Hi, this is Amy Austin, and welcome to A Time to Thrill. Today, I'm, okay, so delighted. I'm sorry, I get so excited. Um, I'm talking to Rachel Heron. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Amy. It's so nice to talk to you. I'm so glad to be here. I am so excited because I I have to lead with a story. I normally don't do that, but there's a story I have to tell you, and then I have so many questions that I want to ask you about everything. Um, (laughs) But I will start with the story. So I... I think, okay, I think I did your podcast, I feel like in the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020. Yeah, it was pre-pandemic, I'm pretty sure. Yes, I know I'd come back from Hawaii, but then, or Houston, I I traveled, well, I used to travel a lot. Um, So (laughs) I had flown in from somewhere and I did the recording. So I... um, uh, well, actually, I just got divorced. I'm so excited. Not that I shouldn't oh, say that out loud. Congratulations. I'm, I'm so excited. But um, I have 
been trying to get divorced for two and a half years, but I've been dating in the meantime. So I, on my dating profile, I have writer. I mean, I have my real job. I, you know, author and whatever, the other stuff on it. Yeah. I'm single mom. I like to travel, whatever the things that define me, which is only three things. (laughs) And I don't put, I also like to eat a lot on there. So that I left off, but, um, and then I have to exercise a whole lot too. And nobody's interested in all that. So I don't, but I, but I don't write under my real name. And um, somebody I dated briefly, like at some point asked me what name I write under. And I always told people because I didn't think it was a secret. Like, it's not a secret. Right. You know, it's just um, my, my name is so hard to spell that I can't even with it. <laughs> and, um, it, but I've had it my whole life and it is what it is. So I, um, there was this guy I dated briefly and he was like, I love your energy and all this other stuff. And I thought, you don't really know me well. Like, I don't understand like your like, you know, love of my energy or whatever. Oh, Here we go. So <laughs> then I was like, I don't understand. So at some point he was like, oh, I think I'm falling in love with you. And he's like, I fell in love with you ever since I saw that video that you did. Oh, and I was my like, God. what video? So I've done other interviews, like, and there's some I wish would die because like one of them <laughs> I did like right after I gave birth and I don't look good. I'm going to oh, be no. <laughs> straight up frank. I just look like a chipmunk or something. <laughs> so in blue, God's sake. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was also nursing. Like, it's just a mess. So not a great idea. But and I guess he had looked up the video of the podcast I did with you on YouTube. Oh my and God. I know. Right. And so he was like, Oh, I fell in love with you when I was watching that video. And I thought, Oh, in the future, I'm not going to tell anybody my pet name. Yeah, okay. Stalker. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so that, that had to end because of that obvious personality flaw, but, <laughs> um, which, you know, but the thing is like, I, I'm not famous or anything. So I can only imagine like this may be a book. I can only imagine what it's like if you're on TV and then you meet people because they already have this perception of who you are without ever having talked to you. Yeah. And that's a, that would be so strange and awkward and uncomfortable. It's really weird. Um, And I don't dislike the interview. Like I, you know, like myself, it's my story. It's who I am. But I was like, oh, in the future, we're not going to discuss that up front. (laughs) you good for you and I'm glad you know that now (laughs) (laughs) but it was but it was the one I did with you so I was like funny wow okay (laughs) good to know um okay so I have like a bunch of questions for you yay um but first are you really moving to New Zealand (laughs) (laughs) yes we are I'm so jealous okay for many uh, reasons I'm jealous but okay go ahead (laughs) yeah we're, we're we're well we're just we're just over over the United States, completely over it. Well, um, a lot of people I know left during the pandemic. I mean, they did leave. Um, so people yeah. I know who were sort of, okay, so I have, obviously, you know, I travel abroad and I have yeah. um, residency and all this other stuff. So I know people who have made that move, you know, more or less. They're like, well, I'm going to do this two years, five years, whatever it is, or they've already made that move. And those are the expats, obviously, I know abroad. And it's just, it's a lot of thought that a lot of my friends have had, but now like, you know, a couple of friends, like they put up their house for sale, got on a plane and left. And I was like, wow. Okay. So you're doing it. I'm like, I have a plan. My plan is like a billion years long, but I'm glad to see that people can execute much more quickly than I can. We're doing it pretty quickly. We had, we had, we, we've always wanted to, because I have dual citizenship. Right. Um, and, 
and and we weren't going to go anywhere um, because we had this really old dog and we it wasn't fair to bring her she wouldn't she wouldn't make the move right yeah. and then suddenly I mean she, she'd been really sick and ill and dying for many many months mm-hmm. um, and we're like well we'll talk about it then but we we, we put in for a work visa mm-hmm. for my wife uh, as a as a partner right. of a New Zealand citizen and it came in the same weekend that she died and we're like well I guess we're moving so wow. now the house is on the market like people are probably in the house touring it right now and we have our managed isolation quarantine um two weeks in a hotel set up for the end of july and then we'll be in new zealand well so first of all i'm very sorry about your dog um oh, thanks. i struggle with pet dying it's like the worst thing i think that's ever happened to me over and over again you know we, what i'm saying yeah we lost three three of our five this year um oh my because we just happened to get a bunch of pets at the same time many years ago mm-hmm. and they all died of old age at the same time around the same time and trust me i think i got agony four pets in 1998 and Ugh. then by my son was alive so 2012 wasn't good i had a bunch Ugh. of 14 15 16 year old pets yes yes you and know, then so- you want you, you remember like how much you're paying to the vet every month and how heartbroken oh, you are oh my god so, it was my biggest expense yeah. after travel like Absolutely. when you're when you're 100%. spending so much money like I spent more on that than I spent on airplane tickets and that's saying a lot <laughs> and um because it was you know you do the expenses it was below federal taxes but above travel <laughs> and so that was like the yes. main thing I'd spent yes. money on um yeah. but it was hard so this is the first time in my life I've never had pets um so when I moved out um uh when I was getting when I left my husband um I left the dog with him because I knew that was going to be a fight I wasn't willing to take on yeah. And, um, and the cat, well, the cat promptly died because that was a 1998 cat, oh. but, um, and the cat, oh my God, I moved out in 2018. The cat lived a long time. And, um, cause I mean, the cat was born in my house, so I was there. Oh. So, oh. um, it was hard, but it's really interesting living without pets. I've just never done it. And I've, I've never with- done it as an adult either. And we still have one dog left and she's younger and she's actually going to be living with my best friend while we're like over there and looking for a house because mm-hmm. it's really hard to rent a house um, in New Zealand with a right. dog. So eventually we'll send for her, but we're going to be, you know, we're going to have no pets for a while. And I, I've also never done that. I feel like I don't even know how to be without a pet. It's strange. So there's, okay. So the downside, and so a lot of my friends got pandemic puppies. Uh, <laughs> so I keep seeing these pictures of you and I was like, oh, I've been here like 14 months or 18, whatever number of months we've all been here. And I could think of, oh, it'd be nothing would be better for all the walks I'm taking to have a dog. Yeah. But then one of the things, the upside is that I could travel with no limitations. Right. So right. I could just, just go. Somebody's like, do you want to go away this weekend? And I can say yes without saying maybe, but let me see if the dog walker, let me see if the dog sitter, let me see if the cat person, you know, and I had four or five pets most of the time. So it was a little logistically a little bit more complicated (laughs) than just like taking your one tiny dog to the, you know, to the kennel. (laughs) Exactly. It was always like, well, this one's sick. So this one's going to go to the vet and this one's going to go to the kennel and this one, maybe the house sitter will come. You know what I mean? So it was, it was a lot to arrange. So it's very footloose and fancy free, but slightly lonely. Yeah. So it's weird. I don't know. I don't know. I was talking to somebody and she's like, well, maybe you'll get another dog. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to try to buy tickets to Budapest and I'm going to be gone for 10 or 12 weeks. So I don't know about that right now, but maybe in in the long run, but I don't, it's hard to travel a lot and also have pets and not feel guilty. I mean, I guess you could do it, but yeah, I have thought about fostering when we get there, you know, um, doing that a little bit more because I, I have successfully fostered in the past and, you you know, yeah. And you know, like I'm actually able to, 
you know, give them away at the end when they find their forever home, which is, I think I could, I I would also potentially fail, Mm -hmm. but, but in the past I didn't have, I didn't have the option to fail. When you have five animals, you can't take another one. Right. You know, (laughs) so the the fostering worked then. So I I think about that sometimes. Oh, I think about it as well. So I thought about it, especially in the summer in Budapest, because a lot of people travel, you know, in Europe, they have a lot of vacation and they travel a lot and they're always looking for fosters and they've considered doing it. Because not so much fostering. Well, yes, it's but short term. Yeah. And, you know, because they're gone 30 days or whatever because they have real vacations. And so I've considered it, but I haven't done it. And then also, um, you know, the places that train seeing eye dogs. Ooh. I've also considered because they need somebody to keep them as puppies when they're rambunctious right. and crazy right. before they start training. And I've thought about doing that as well, but I don't know if I could give it up. So I that you'd be able to, because when you go into it with the attitude that that's what you are going to do and that's right. what you have to do, it still hurts, mm. but it's not like it hurts because they're dying. Like, right. like we're used to, it mm. hurts because we won't be around them, but they'll be so loved and they're having such a great life. And you know, it hurts for a day mm-hmm. rather than, you know, months. months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but it's, I do think about, I do think about all that because I do miss it. I mean, they're lovely companions and dogs are super social and, you know, my son and I joke about dogs because he's always like, when you ask a dog, what time is it? What time does a dog say? And I'm like, now. Because they're the <laughs> only animals I know who live in completely in the moment. Like, 100%. what time is it now? What are you doing yeah. now? You know, it's like they're all about the now. That's with, adorable. With no thought that. about the past or future. Like, they're except for eating. But you know what I mean? But they're like, <laughs> they're all in with you. You're like, you want to go out? They're like, yeah. You know? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I wasn't doing anything. I know. Yeah. You, you want to go for a drive? Sure. You want to go to the park? Absolutely. Like it's just, and so I miss that energy. Like I miss that immediacy, that energy yeah. where you're just, they're like enthusiastic about whatever. I love that. Um, but soon or sooner or later or something like that. So let me, now I've digressed for a good long time. What I have questions because, okay, so I was introduced to you as a crime author, um, probably because that's also what I write among yeah, other things. Yeah. But so of course I look on your website, I'm like, oh, she has a similar ro- background to me. She wrote romances. Yeah, wow. that's how we got into this gig. And I didn't know that because, so I have written both for, oh my God, a lot of years, maybe like 10, 15 years. It's, yeah. it's creeping up on me, but I don't think I'm finishing my last romance. And I might not write romance anymore. Um, I'm sort of reckoning with that. That's a whole yeah. like life thought because it's, it's what I read a lot of as a child. It's how I grew up. It, it's the first, you know, 10 books I wrote or whatever. Mm-hmm. And thinking about giving it up feels awful. <laughs> I mean, but, but anyway, but crime fiction makes more money. So I need to, you know, be an adult and think practically. <laughs> um, but how, what, okay. How did you start writing? So I, I got a master's which uh, in writing mm-hmm. and which promptly killed every ounce of enthusiasm I had for the craft. And, you know, I, I, I mean, people like, said that to me oh, and I, God, so I didn't so do it. I, I, you don't need it. Nobody needs it. Absolutely. <laughs> nobody needs it. It really, it really crushed my spirit for about seven years. And I kept trying to write the great American novel and just kept failing. And I was trying to be good and literary and beautiful and all of those things. And then in 2006, my sister told me about NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. Mm-hmm. And I remember I told her very like 
annoyed with her. Like, I'm a real writer. I would never <laughs> try to write a book in a month. That's ridiculous. And then, you know, she left and I Googled it and I was like, oh my God, I'm not writing. I need to do this. So I signed up and I knew that if I was going to write something that fast, if you write 50,000 words in a month, which mm-hmm. is the goal of NaNoWriMo, right. um, that it would have to be something that I just loved. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved romance and love. And, you know, I also grew up reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was hammered into me in grad school that, you know, we don't do that kind of genre fiction, fiction. Um, especially one based around you know women's autonomy and um, so but I but I loved it and I also loved knitting and um a lot so this was before knitlet was a thing mm-hmm. I think Friday night knitting had just come out but um, knitting club yeah yeah but but nothing else was out yet but I, I was like I'm just gonna write a love story about a knitter and um she meets the sheep rancher and I think my tagline was uh they both they both need wool, but not to generate heat because they generate enough of their own. <laughs> and it was, and it was a terrible, terrible book, you know. And it was really, you know, written fast and crappily. Um, and I thought, well, that was fun, you know. I, I won Nanorimo by finishing the book, and mm-hmm. and then I put it away. But then I got it out a while later, maybe the next year. And I took a look at it, and I was expecting to find nothing but like terrible writing. Mm-hmm. And instead. I found there was a lot of terrible writing, but there was a lot of some of the best writing I'd ever done because I'd finally, for the very first time, been able to get out of my oh, inner yeah. editor's way. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this could be something. So I revised it to the best of my ability, even though I didn't know how to revise. You know, my master's had never taught me about finishing a book or revising a book or anything <laughs> like that. That's um, interesting. But I, I managed to clean it up enough and I sent it out, you know, did a query letter, doing this all by myself. I didn't know any writers mm-hmm. um, in the industry and I'd never heard of Romance Writers of America, any of that. And uh, But I got an agent and she managed to sell it in a three book deal at auction to HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. And that was my first um published novel and it was called how to knit a love song wow and that turned, it was awesome it was so <laughs> awesome and then i joined rwa and i made a lot of friends and um really got into the writing industry and then i think my first i'm trying to find i think my first five or six no my first six books were romance and then i did a knitting memoir and um then i did some women's fiction because i wanted to shift into that mm-hmm. um and and basically so i always like to say that i'm an international bestseller because i am <laughs> I, right. I internationally sell very well, but I, but I bomb in the States. I just can never make money in the States. Um, so all my, you know, my, my Australian publisher, Random House and Penguin, you know, in before they merged, they, right. they would hire me to write more books, but I just kept losing contracts in America because the, the books weren't selling. Hmm. So I would, I continued to write romance for Australia for a while while I was trying to do new women's fiction for the States. Um, and then I, um, and from that, because I was writing for Australia, then those books I could self-publish everywhere else. Oh, right. Like they were doing all the editing and the contracting and all right. that. But but so that's how I got into self-publishing. And then I continued uh, to self-publish uh, romance on my own. I wouldn't offer it to, you know, either any country. Right. And just did it on my own. And then my agent, um, we just kept talking about like, what do you love to read and what do you love to write? And I was super interested in crime fiction. That's I love to read thriller. That's my thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, under R.H. Heron, uh, two years ago, I had stolen, no, I guess it was a year and a half ago, I had stolen things come out. Mm -hmm. And then just last week, I had Hush Little Baby, the second from Penguin, um, it came out. So that's my second uh, thriller, domestic thriller. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not know that. So I read Stolen things i read it last week or the week before sorry it comes and goes like i mean there's other stuff going on so you know of course um but it was so interesting so okay i okay 
so many questions. <laughs> Let's go back to what, okay, what do you like about crime fiction? Well, let me say this. So I, okay, when I was growing up, I read, well, I'll read anything. I still read anything. I'm not that picky. So I'm the worst, like I'm the worst reader. Like I'll just read it. <laughs> what is it? Sure, I'll read it. Like reader, perhaps. I just literally don't have a, a bunch of filters. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so some things appeal to me. Okay, I don't read fantasy and I don't read sci-fi, but I have, and I yeah, might again, yeah. who knows. But what, okay, what is, okay, what were the first crime fiction books that appeal to you? You know, way back when, when I was a kid, I loved the Mary Stewart gothics. Mm-hmm. They were, the, you know, the, the, the really kind of almost, you know, verging on horror, creepy, yes. um, you know, 70s gothics. And then... I'll never uh, look at rocks and big houses the way again. Exactly. I always feel like I'm on the coast of Maine and it's dark and who knows what's going to happen. And you know she's going to go down those stairs towards I know. the beach. You know, Why? And down there and all the rocks is where it gets real bad. Oh. Um, and I just, I like the feeling of being scared by reality. Um, I will also read horror, but mm-hmm. um, but horror to me is kind of at a remove. Like I'm not scared of the monsters or the ghosts or the demons coming to get me because you know, I, I live in the here and now. And, you know, sometimes I like to read that, but I really like to be scared by things that really could happen. And I feel like for me, there's this, and I feel like for a lot of readers, there's this level of satisfaction that if I can see the bad thing happening <laughs> to somebody else, then it's not in my house, you know, and I'm watching it happen to somebody else. And I know that my doors are locked. Right. Um, and I really, I really, I love that about it. And I love, I kind of just in the same way that I love making um, romance readers cry. Mm-hmm. I love scaring the crime readers. <laughs> oh, wow. This is not at all what I get out of crime fiction. Okay. So oh, yeah, I, li- I like to evoke big, big emotions in people. And then what I really like to do is fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of my books have the, have this and I can't help it and they all end in like hope and love and family and um, a lot of times mother daughter relationship um, but I really like to break them first wow okay this is not at all how I write I just okay <laughs> this is not at all how I think like I okay um <laughs> trying to put that in my head because I write for a completely different reason what is your reason for writing crime fiction I want the vindication oh see and I don't have any of that <laughs> I just no. want vindication because a lot of bad people do bad things and I want vindication, but I also, my books do not always end on a hopeful note, which oh, interesting. so bad things happen to people and it's just bad. Like, it's just yeah. like, so I was talking somebody, okay. So I get a lot of reader emails, but the two, they ask mainly about two characters. Um, one who was in foster care and it didn't go well. And mm-hmm. one who was sex trafficked and it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. And people are always asking me like, what happened to them? And I was like, it, doesn't end well like does it that's not a story that you're like oh and then tomorrow she was president I mean I don't know what to say like that's right that's like they need a lot of therapy and hopefully they can like eke out some semblance of life but I don't think yeah um so you know whether or not the people who did that get punished or whatever is that's actually not where I'm writing writing for a completely different reason so it's just interesting because I that's not what I read for I read mainly because I want to see the crazy but I don't want to live with the crazy and yeah and I think that's really similar to like I want the scary but I don't want to live the scary right so I I, see I don't write books actually I don't read generally about sociopaths or psychopaths because I Mm -hmm. don't there's no there's no why and so that's I don't do no if there's no why then that's just 
you know, that's just random happenstance. And hopefully yeah. you've read like Gavin De Becker's Gift of Fear and the hairs rise on your head and you lock the door. Exactly. You, you know, you don't walk down the steps toward the rock. So, <laughs> but I'm always about the why, but I never thought about being scared because I don't like to be scared. So Stephen King, as a kid, I could like, that's like one eye open kind of book. Like, you know, <laughs> and, and then I put it down and then I can't sleep for three days. So I literally <laughs> stopped reading them because I couldn't, it's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with the writing. I was just like, well, I can't be scared like this because yeah. I can't sleep. You were taking so, care of yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I do, there's like, I mean, so with the filter, I learned to like filter some of those things out, but do you, so what kind of crime fiction really appealed to you? Cause it, the first ones I read that appealed to me, like Philip Margolin, like back in the day, I really liked his method of storytelling. Um, Michael Conley, like a bunch of. Oh, I did. I did love Michael Connolly. He was he was a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the things that pop out to me are really the th- the books that have been written in the last like ten or so years, written by women, and I really like the scarier the better. Um, I just read and loved, and I'm forgetting the uh, the name of the writer, but um, uh, it was Girl A, mm-hmm. which was just one of this premise of you know, these kids locked in a house as they were growing up and, and being abused. And it was just one of the most terrifying premises that I could think of. And I just couldn't put it down. I, I, for some reason, if it goes real dark, Mm -hmm. I want to be there. And I don't know what that says about my psyche, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, the, the, the ones that do put women in jeopardy, that do put children in jeopardy, you know, and I hear a lot of, of that from my readers, like, well, it's right. got a child in jeopardy, I can't read it. Right. And I'm like, I totally support you in that. You shouldn't read it if this is going to make you feel uncomfortable as a parent. But um, but I like to go there. So, so yeah. do you read Karen Slaughter then? Because at some I point... Oh, you I, know, I read one a while ago and I can't, and I liked it, I remember, but I can't remember which one it was. Because I read a few and I was like, if I have to read it about any more child molestation, we're done. Like, I'm done. Like, I think I'm done. Like, I don't mind it as a, I mean, I've written about it. I don't mind it as a topic, but I was like the third in a row. Like I had to, you know, I had to walk away. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's too much. I was like, "Mm, I don't, she was a small town. Well, I'm not getting into a doctor and medical examiner, like her main character. So, but it was a small town. I was like, well, this small town seems crazy. (laughs) And um, I don't like it. Yeah. And yeah. Th- this is too many children being hurt. I'm sorry. Um, and I definitely, and I definitely have to put up that filter with myself. Like I'll generally read one really, really scary, awful book where awful things are ter- happening. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have to read three or four palate cleansers, you know, like um, the lighter women's fiction is mm-hmm. generally what I do. Or I also love my, my other passion and what I teach at Stanford is memoir. Um, so I just, I just love memoir. So that's basically what I'm reading in between reading the scary books. Okay. I have a thousand questions, but let me ask you this. So do you read like Tana French then? I love Tana French. Okay. So, yeah. cause I love Tana French, but I feel like we would not love Tana French for the same reasons. Cause I feel like her books are more meditative. They it's more about the why. Did you read the most recent one that just came out? The Searcher? Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> yes. I love, oh, Cal. Okay. So I loved it. I loved, I loved it. it. But me and um, my my best friend Sophie Littlefield, who also writes crime fiction, she also loved it, and I, and I was like, okay, that was one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. But yeah. I just kept waiting for something really bad to happen, and she's like, Rachel, you are so weird. Like, uh... I was just waiting for more bodies and more gore. But that's not how Tana French writes. But I will say that Tana is a lot like you in that, like, oh, there's no, I won't spoil anything. And it was the end of a book, end of a book that that just didn't end well. And I, the, 
and the bad person just gets away with it, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really dark. And the way she did that and pulled that off was so incredible because it's really like life. Did that person get away with it? Yeah, they did. But do you not think the searcher... Okay, so for me, the searcher, like what I, one of the things I really loved about it was Cal's relationship oh, it was with gorgeous. the kid. And that was, was so beautiful to me. Like I just yeah. was like... For no other reason, this guy seemed like he had a mess in his life and that's a whole different conversation. But I was like, I would just want to meet him because the kindness that he extended to that child, like just made me want to cry. Like I thought it was was so delightful and amazingly written. She writes emotional relationships between people just impeccably. And that's why I worship her. And yeah. that's I. That's what I. So I'm reading for the emotional relationship and the incidental stuff, like people dying, is incidental to me because I'm more interested in the interpersonal relationships. Yeah, yeah, and honestly, that's what I write too. Like that's that's always my focus is the emotional relationships. But generally, it is about um, mother daughter and this. I know that one was a really kind of interesting father figure. Yeah, so, so was, good, so good, so good, <laughs> so good. I, it's a bad, I I can't tell you how much I loved it. Like I was just like yeah, I normally yeah. try to get out of bed and not read. So I read in the morning a lot, and then I was like, you know, as the time creeps up, I need to get out of bed. Um, and that one, I I didn't get out. I was like, well, I'm just gonna read just a little bit more and just a little bit more. Because I like Cal. (laughs) It's work. It's work. You can always, I always tell myself this is work. (laughs) That's how I try to think of it. Okay. So, okay. And then memoirs. Okay. I'm going to skip memoirs for a second because I have many questions about that. Um, (laughs) Women's fiction. So what, okay. So women's fiction is about the interpersonal relationship. So what are you looking for in women's fiction? Because I know what I'm looking for, but I think from what, okay. From the way women's women's fiction is marketed, I'm starting to get the, I'm starting to believe that perhaps I'm looking for something different than other people. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for, I guess what I'm looking for and what I love to read are people who are damaged in some way and then finding themselves, but on the way finding family. One of my, one of my core uh, themes is always chosen family okay. um, and people really, really rising to challenges and, and, and falling in love with each other and not, and not in a romantic way, but right. just really, really loving, very, very, very hard. And that is actually, that's where my, that's my wheelhouse. That's my, that's my core strength as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really funny when I do write thriller, basically, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. I write a women's fiction novel and then my agent and, or my editor says, okay, this is great. This is women's fiction. Now take out half of the relationship stuff <laughs> and add some more scary moments and mm-hmm. then I'll do it. And they'll be like, okay, good try. Now take out some more relationship and add some more scary. And that's how I write a, a, a suspense novel. <laughs> oh, this is so fascinating because, okay. So a I, lot love, of revision. I love women's fiction. I've only written eh, maybe four or five. I'd have to think about it like in too much detail right now. Um, but I love the damaged women. So I just, that I couldn't, I could read and write that all day, every day for the rest of my life. For some reason that is so juicy, so fascinating, so much to delve into. Um, but, uh, but, and so I do worry sometimes not worry. Okay. The people who write me and read my books do not complain. However, I, when I was writing the last book, it's not out for many months, but the last um, thriller I wrote, I started to feel like I was, I was dipping my toe into women's fiction, like far too much. I was like, I'm up to chapter seven and that's like, I know, right? And I was like, well, we know the guy died, right? (laughs) And 
And but she's at this dinner with her best friend and this guy's an abusive relationship and she's dating this guy and it's not going well. But but there's a crime, right? <laughs> That's exactly what how I write my first drafts. I just forget to add all of the thriller suspense. And then, but you know, and that's the thing about writing. I, I am firmly of the belief, um, and I think we might have talked about this, mm. that like revision is where the magic is. I write a crappy first draft and then I can turn, not that I ever have, but I could turn a sleepy women's fiction into a high stakes fantasy if I needed to. I can, revi- <laughs> I can re- revise anything into anything else, but that crappy first draft has to, has to be there first. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So I, well, let me say this. Since my readers don't complain and they continue to buy the books, what I've come to the determination, at least with that series, which may end, I'm still on the fence about that, but I wrote the 10th book with with a satisfying closure, I feel. Ooh, uh, I'll hear I'll hear back later and like the end of the year <laughs> that they're not satisfied, but that's not until, not yet. Um, but I, I like the intersection so what I want, I'm trying to think who writes like this. Maybe Tana French. No, Elizabeth George also writes like this. I want an ongoing story with people with deep interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. and also maybe a death and then yeah, some social yeah. commentary. So yeah. um, I think I've come to be okay with it. So it, turned, it was my first murder mystery. Let me tell you, those are hard to write. I don't I would uh, never want to write one. I just don't think I can. I'm I, not smart enough. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'll do it again. Like I had to have a chart. Yeah, and... I would have to have that too. I would have to have a lot of long conversations with plotting help, you know, like just to figure that out. No, I'm not a plotter. Yeah. And I had to... Me neither. Yeah. I, I struggled with... I actually had to write out the murder timeline because I was like, how am I going to figure out what happened unless I know what happened? And that took right. like... That was like a week. And I was like, this is not even... Think- <laughs> this is not words in the book. I was like, but I need to know what happened because I can't just say somebody killed something you know you think it's yeah, one person yeah. and it's really another person and it's instead it's this third person but i can't pull that off unless i figure out that they were all actually there and capable of murdering the guy <laughs> you know so that was that was um I, I might not do that again but it was <laughs> but i needed but but he had to die um so i needed to do that but it was interesting but i still wanted to talk about her my main character her name's casey but her like her inability to have a successful relationship and yeah. her, her growing finally self-esteem. Like I just, nice. like, I woke up one day and I thought, why is she not, why can't she just trust herself? Like, I was, oh yeah. And I was like, she finally, like it took three books, but she finally like has come into her own and realized that she's not like this failure at life, which is how the whole book started. Cause you know, it's a Phoenix, you know, I don't know. David and Goliath sort of thing, endless tale. She's a tiny person who had something bad happen to her and she's up against these big, whatever, corporations, lawyers, whatever it is. But it was a lot to do that. But I still think those, if I could, I think the blend of those two genres is maybe my favorite. Mm, that's um, awesome so I used to like alternate between like say Jodie Picoult and then like Michael Conley like I would just have to be like right look look these people have damage and stuff happens in their life oh and then somebody died but they were never in the same book yeah um, <laughs> but I the, the older I get the more I seek out books like that and I think that there are more novels that are either British novelists Irish novelists or novels written for that audience that blend that a little bit more than maybe American novels do, do. you read um, Val McDermott Speaking of the UK, only, she isn't. She's incredible. Yeah, only two because I had to read them for some. There's a trivia contest. I'm not going to get into that. I do that. I have to sometimes pre prepare for. <laughs> she she does a really good job with the with the mixing, like you know, like Tana French, just mm-hmm. mixing the emotional with the with the with the scary. 
Okay. So yeah. now I want to ask you about memoirs. So last year, so I have another pen name, which I will not mention because they are completely separate. Um, <laughs> and I wrote a memoir in 20 ooh, years ago, a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. And um, it was, it started out as just a way to entertain my friends. So <laughs> I would have these weekends and then I'd write what happened and then entertain my friends. And then, but my, most of my friends are writers at some point. They're like, you know, right. this, you could just make this a memoir. And I was like, oh, that's an idea. Um, but what is it? Okay. So I wrote the, I'll say this. I wrote the memoir. And then this year, um, I, okay. So in 2020, I started two podcasts, this one. And the other one is me reading the memoir and then talking about it from the future. Um, oh, fabulous. I love that. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's slightly, it's both, it's mortifying or excruciating because yeah, yeah. you're like, who was that person? <laughs> she They let her out in the world. They, somebody should have locked the door and just kept that locked real tight. But that's what makes for great reading. <laughs> um, really tight. So, but what is it, what is it that you love about memoir? Because I do like them, like glass walls, like, uh, I mean, oh, yeah, Jeanette was, Walls. Um, yeah. Glass, glass Castle. castle. Yeah. Um, it's one of the ones I love the most of the last 20 years, I guess, at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's a great, I've taught that a couple of times mm-hmm. too. That's, it's just a, it's a, it's, it's perfect. Um, the thing I love about memoir, I think, is that it basically is, if, if the writer's doing it well, it is, it is just like a novel, mm-hmm. um, but they're choosing to frame an aspect of their lives. And I love that you mentioned the glass castle because, you know, so when I teach, I'm teaching story structure, I'm teaching traditional story structure. Right. So, you know, you've got to have your inciting incident, your context, your midpoint, your dark moment. And I had one of my students challenge me. She's like, okay, that's great, Rachel. But you know, like we read the glass castle. I don't think that's in there. And, and, uh, and I challenged them to come back, like, go find the inciting incident, go find the midpoint, go mm-hmm. find the dark moment. And they came back in with their post-its in the book in all of the right places. And uh, even if Jeanette Walls didn't do that on purpose, because right. some people don't, they just automatically do storytelling yeah oh yeah they do gorgeous story structure just because they understand it internally it's all there um and i love this is this is how it works i teach it in the extension course at stanford Mm -hmm. and sometimes at berkeley um and generally my students are people who come in and they want to tell the story of their life and the reason i love teaching memoir is that i uh, sometimes i'm teaching writers but sometimes i'm just teaching readers who love reading who want to talk about their lives and i get to talk them out of writing an autobiography because nobody wants to read an autobiography. We want to read a memoir, which is a carefully crafted story that supports an argument and a theme Mm -hmm. um, and a character arc and a personal transformation. And then I get to see that happen. And the best thing is when, you know, like then um, some of them have self-published and then they send me the book and I put it on my shelf of Mm -hmm. students' books and they get their story out there. And it's really, really wonderful. So do you, oh, wait, did you read? Yeah, I'm sure you, oh, did you read? Um, I assume you read in education. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think that's yeah. the last, not that's not the last memoir. It's the last one I remember right off the top of my head. Um, yeah, that's I, that's a great book. Yeah, it's, it was fascinating to me. Um, it was fascinating, but, but I will say that she, I think she, uh, so for educated, I think she did a, a really good job of, of crafting it with story structure. However, and I don't know if you felt this, I feel like I was always still an inch or two away from really knowing her. Yes. Like it, it, there was a certain level of distance. Length. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the I way wish that, that hadn't been there. Yes. I think, yes. But I, I but I get it. Like I get oh, it. Yeah. So, so I'm doing this podcast. So every, so I haven't read it, you know, like I don't sit around and read my books. I got other things to do with my life. So <laughs> I have been reading one week. It's like weekly things. It's a year, but I've been reading each chapter 
simultaneously, like for the, not for the first time, because I wrote it, but you know, it's been a couple of years right. and I've been reading it and it's just, I wish there were more distance. Like at some point, <laughs> I was, cause I had to do, um, I was doing promotion for it recently. And all I could think of is I had to call a friend and I was like, she's going to read the book. And she was like, you sold a lot of books. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, but it's never about me. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And but I, that, that means you did it right. If there's so little different distance that you are incredibly uncomfortable, then that is the book that a reader wants to read. That's a book that a reader wants to lean into. Uh, yes, but I don't know how. So look, when I've seen the interviews, um, I can't think of the woman who wrote Anne Education. I saw a few interviews. But when I watched the interviews- Tara Westover. That's it. <laughs> when I watched the interviews- because I'm always looking for, so I do, I, so after I read the book, I was on like YouTube or whatever it was looking for interviews because I did want to know more because I felt that distance. And I was like, well, let me just dive in more, see, see if I can find out some more. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I get it. I get the, the distance because it's a little easier. Like I think oh, if absolutely. I had to, to talk about, it's excruciating. And then even I was reading um, during the pandemic, I read um, Hillbilly Elegy. Because um, mm-hmm. apparently I'm the only person in the world who didn't read the book when it came out a gazillion years ago. So, you know, I had some time to catch up on books. And, <laughs> and I was reading that. But that also has a little bit of distance. I agree. Uh, um, I agree. And it was more political than I thought it was. I get, okay, so I didn't pay it. I don't. He, I try to keep myself away from hearing about books before I read them because I feel like it will spoil too. it. So yeah. I had no idea. So then after I read that, then I, of course, then I was Googling again. I was like, let me see the interviews because I didn't realize that it had it stood for a certain moment in time and the election yeah. and all that. Like I didn't, that was on, I thought it was specifically what it was um, until I got to the end and I was like, Oh, this just took a turn. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, so I understand distance and if I had to do it over again and I wasn't living in the moment, I would, I, I would probably write it with more distance. And I thought about it when I had to send it to this um, interviewer. And I had to call a friend yeah. and I was like, okay, so I'm going to send it to her. And she was like, okay, calm down. I was like, but she'll know, you know, all of that. But I, I, all I could think of is if I did it over again now, I would write it with the distance. Yeah. I would, I would say that you might lose something from that though, because like, I think that, you know, reading Tara Westover mm-hmm. and reading Hillbilly Elegy, like the, those, ha- I read those with almost a, you know, a voyeuristic. Right lens. Whereas if I read somebody who is being their ultimate vulnerable self, mm-hmm. that has the power to transform me as a reader, right. as a person. And that's what I really want. I, I learned this from uh, Jennifer Traig is one of my uh, favorite memoirs. She's she's written uh, Devil in the Details. She writes about her scrupulosity OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was actually who edited um, my memoir, Life in Stitches. Mm-hmm. And for, for Chronicle books. And, um, and it was, I would send her these essays that I was writing and they were, you know, I thought they were great essays. They're so good. And I'd send them to her to edit. And then she would basically circle the one sentence that I felt the most scared to write. And mm-hmm. then, and then she would say, get rid of the rest of the essay. This is where the essay is. This is, this is wow. where the heart of this is. And I was like, oh, damn it. I didn't want to go there. Talk <laughs> about that. But that's what people want. That's what has, has the capability to transform another human being. And I think that's gorgeous. And I'm glad you did it that way. That's so interesting. So I will say this and then I won't talk about it anymore. But like at the end, so the editor, like she sends it back to me at some point, who knows, you know, time. And she was like, well, she was like, this was quite the cautionary tale. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it seems all normal to me. Like I didn't like nothing. Right. And so oh, like, that's funny in in the rereading. 
um, over the last few weeks or whatever, when I've been doing the podcast weekly, all I can think of is, oh, oh, <laughs> you can she should have said she should have said that a little louder for the people in the back, because <laughs> like I get it now, but to me it was so immediate, like it was me. Yeah. So I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a rational adult. I went to school, like you know, I pay my bills. <laughs> I don't drive like a crazy person. This is in, but now in retrospect, I'm like, oh God, God, somebody should have kept her from the world (laughs) that's hilarious i love that um so i have to ask about life and citrus so i knit but but not well let me not say this i knit often okay in my head i'm an occasional knitter but i knit a lot according to my child but but that's mainly because i can't sit still yeah that's why i do it and so like if if and this was when I did it when I was married and I do it with my child now too, is that like some people like to watch a movie or watch a TV show. And my ability to sit down and watch something is about six or seven minutes. Before, That's hilarious. Before I'm my like, wife, yeah. My wife times me and she says, I can never get past seven minutes before I'm <laughs> I got it's time always to. Always seven minutes. Because I'm like, yeah. oh, well, let me just go get some laundry to fold. And yeah. then, <laughs> oh, well, let me just get this thing to dust or whatever it is. And so my inability to sit down, I understand, uh, does not go over well with other people. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that is that is actually why I knit. It helps keep me in place. Yeah. yeah. So I knit yeah. to sit down. Um, mm-hmm. And like, so my son likes, like when we were watching the British Bake Off or whatever it was, and I was like, okay, well, this is an hour. And so like a whole real hour. And so what I'm going to have to knit. So I do knit sweaters mainly. I, I know, and I live in Southern California, so it's a whole its own thing. But I, know, I, I love yeah. to, I love to knit a cardigan. <laughs> yeah, me too. I just finished one and I don't wear them. I'm always too warm. It's always too warm, <laughs> but I have lots of cardigans. Um, so I knit, but what I, okay. When did you learn to knit? And yeah, when did you learn to knit or how? I think I learned to knit when I was about five. I, I remember it. I remember asking my mom to teach me. Um, and my, my, she was a New Zealander. And my grandma, of course, was a New Zealander. And mm-hmm. I, they, uh, they, she, my mom was raised on a sheep farm mm-hmm. in New Zealand. And, um, and so it had always kind of been in her blood, but it kind of skipped my mom. Like she knew how to knit, but she wasn't obsessed with it like I was. And, mm-hmm. and I remember her teaching me knit and pearl. And then she gave me um Elizabeth Zimmerman's Knitting Without Tears mm-hmm. um, and I just kind of read my way through then and it was just always something that was with me but it really it really got big with me when I was in my 20s um this was before anybody was knitting so you know everybody called me grandma they told you know they <laughs> would laugh and like who who knits um and then you know of course the internet came around right. and everybody started knitting and it's been and it's been awesome since then but especially for because I have pretty strong ADHD and the emphasis is on the H of the hyperactive part of the <laughs> right. ADHD so it is just it's like it's just directed fidgeting that's yes that's exactly yeah <laughs> I, I get it. It's just like, well, okay, look at me. But then it's, it's, yes, I just, I do it to sit down. And it, yeah. And it's like a mental crutch too. Like I just have to have it because we're packing so much. I, and I don't even knit that much, you know, because I write so much, that's mm-hmm. really what I do. Right. I don't knit like I used to, but I need it for like a security blanket. And in, and in fact, this morning I realized that I'd accidentally packed every single project oh. and I had to, I had to be in a meeting that was a couple of hours long. And so I ran to the yarn store just to buy. I didn't even care what I'm casting on. I just bought some yarn so that I could have it in my hands right. to, to settle my nerves. Right. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> I'm not the only one then. <laughs> I so hard. I, so, so what do yeah. you – oh, so what do you – wait, okay. A, do you have a Ravelry account? 
I do. It's just under Rachel Heron. Okay, so I will yep. be friending you soon. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, although I was, I keep logging on the last few days, and then I'm like, oh no, I got something else to do. So I haven't logged on because I need to do other things. But I, you know, I, I I sit down, I click, and I go, oh wait, you know, you know, you, you know what, you need to back away from this and go do the things you really need to do because you know, right, later right. I'll have been scrolling past projects and then favoriting them and then figuring out yeah. to get the yarn, and it, it becomes a whole little. Discovery exactly box. what I was doing this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, I hadn't done it in probably a year or two, just because I'm normally just like knitting shawls or socks or something simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted a brand new project this morning, so I got onto Ravelry and did that. It was so fun, <laughs> so fun. So, okay, so I'm avoiding that. Well, I'm maybe in a few weeks. <laughs> um, we'll see. But um, okay, so you knit socks. So do you knit complicated projects? So what for many years? So I've been knitting. Oh my god! So this is what happens. I think I've been knitting like 30 years. But it feels like, you know, it's not a new hobby. I don't know. But yeah, I realized yeah. that the, the projects have gotten more and more complicated. But I was always, no, I'm still afraid. Like, I see patterns and I think, well, that's for other people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am, I love complicated. I love color work. I love incredibly complicated cables. I love, you know, incredibly tricky lace. But I also always like to have something completely mind-numbingly simple which for me is a sock and mm-hmm. socks like I can knit in the dark I can knit in the movies it's just I, I can I don't ever have to think about it so I like to have one complicated thing and then one simple thing normally okay so can I ask yeah. you about your sock heel like what do yeah. you because okay so I do now a, I only do an afterthought I do a, heel I do a toe up short row heel uh. um so it's part, it's part, so easy it takes five minutes and then your heel is done and then you just knit in the I just knit tubes but put it, put that short, but the short row heel is where it's at. Okay. I'm into the afterthought heel and I'm, I'm a, I'm, That's a, con- good I'm a convert, yeah. but it does require, like you have to stop and then pay attention. Yeah. 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 And then once the heel is done, then you can go back. Then you can um, stop paying attention again. Yeah. Yes, but I that's that's the thing I'm into now is the afterthought heel because I love the way it looks perfect with sock with yeah. um striped sock yarn. Yes, it does. <laughs> I agree. Um, non knitters are like, what? Are you what happened? About? I know. Um, okay, sorry. I always ask people about their heels because I'm always interested in what people have decided. Um, because I, I, I've gone through a bunch of heel options and that's where I've settled now for the most part, except for, preferred heel. except for just quick socks that I knit up. I call them my around the house socks, like things I just knit up just to put on when it gets chilly, like LA yeah, chilly, yeah. not real chilly. And yeah. those, um, I just turn a regular heel. Like it doesn't matter cause I'm not going to wear it anywhere. Um, and it's right, usually right. leftover sweater yarn anyway. So they're super thick. Okay. Oh, I love that. I've never done that. Oh, my son, like That's super smart. Oh, and then so I then I'm going to ask you this other thing because this is my pandemic. I had two pandemic projects. One was to finally do a living room wall with pictures, which just took a Ooh, long time. Nice. And then my other project was scrap yarn. So I made a scrap yarn blanket um, oh, that involved those. color work because scrap yarn is obviously like everything. Um, yeah. But what do you do with your scrap yarn? Because at some point I had just I had three or four boxes, and they I was just like, this yeah. is. What? We have this is ridiculous. A, in the Bay Area, we have this great um, place called the uh, Depot for Creative Reuse and Recycle. And all oh. the only thing they take is craft stuff. So um, I am a person who likes to get rid of stuff. And I just, I'll just take all of my scraps down there. Or I'm even worse. I'm even worse. Like when I was cleaning out for the New Zealand move, I just found project after project of, you know, stashed yarn. Like when mm-hmm. I was in Iceland, I bought Icelandic yarn to do this, you know, yes. loafy sweater. And then I just donated all of it, all of it. I'm going to New Zealand. They have yarn there. Yes, they do. <laughs> I imagine they do. Oh, this is so funny. So, yeah, I'm a big donator. 
Oh, I wish. Oh, okay. Now I'm thinking I'm going to get on a plane with my yarn because (laughs) (laughs) don't, I don't discount it. That could like happen 90% because I always feel so guilty. So for a while I used to give it away. Um, Here we have like giveaway loops like on Yahoo or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I would give it away, but then sometimes they just became so little. So the scrap yarn blanket actually used 90% of the scrap yarn. Oh my God. And they are so beautiful. The scrap yarn blanket, I think is just stunningly gorgeous. I love them. And it made me yeah. happy. It just made me so, yeah. I was like, look, and it's super thick and my son loves it. He's like, it's squishy and it has like, because I, because oh, it's a lot so of yarn cool. that I love that, you know, you right. don't need so much. Um, and how many shawls do I need? <laughs> I mean, I have, a, <laughs> I, know. I have a I shelf of shawls. Shawl. Exactly. Yeah. But I have a shelf of I shawls. <laughs> I pass it every so often. Um, I wear them maybe on planes, to be honest, because it's cold on planes. Yeah. I love a shawl on a plane. plane. They're the best. Yep. Oh, okay. So what, so all that said, what was the memoir about? So the, the memoir was basically, um, I, I used knitting as the background music and it's the theme of this particular memoir is just kind of like my life seen through the lens of what was on my needles at the time. Like the, mm-hmm. when I was knitting my wedding dress and when mm-hmm. I was knitting this, this copy of a Norwegian sweater that my mom had made for her in the 60s in Norway and I was copying that as she was dying um those kind of things so it's kind of like it was just a motif and it was a a, a, an excuse to get me into these emotional memories Mm -hmm. um so that's that's how that one went what what uh prompted you to want to write a memoir because a memoir is not fiction like and I normally don't I normally try to stay in my wheelhouse I mean not well no yeah let's call my wheelhouse fiction not (laughs) not genre I actually started, I started out with um, narrative nonfiction. I was, I'm I'm (gasps) going to create it. Yeah. So back, back in the day, and I've been blogging since 2002. So for almost 20 years now Mm -hmm. before, like, you know, when, when, when there were like 17 blogs, you know, like I was one of them and I've been writing that kind of look into my life, that Mm -hmm. kind of peek into my life for that long. And the, the, the publisher actually approached my agent Mm -hmm. and said, this is what we want from Rachel. And I just said, okay, I'll do that. And and it turns out I just fell in love and I didn't know what I was doing. I had to learn about memoir then. Mm. Um, and right now I'm trying to finish up. I'm fin- I have another one. I have like two on the way out to my agent. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm doing a lot of work in there and that's, and I just, I just love that. Okay. So it's narrative nonfiction favorite. is my first love. Oh, uh, yay. Um, oh, so this is what made me not get an MFA. Because, yeah. Good for you. That was a good choice. Um, because I think the last professor I had in, oh, I, I'm not going to remember the class. Of course, I'm going to forget this. Um, but it was a narrative nonfiction course. And I, okay, so what kind of, okay, so let me say this. I was, I started out like being a Studs Terkel fan um, because that to me was fascinating. He wrote about work and stuff like that. In yeah, Chicago. yeah, yeah. Um, but there's so many, that was my first love. Like I, okay, I like the idea of long form magazine articles, but I always felt that they were not long enough. <laughs> Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. So 10,000 words or whatever. I don't even know if that stuff exists anymore in terms of magazines. Well, they do. I mean, I guess I'm thinking. Well, they've gone they, like long, like the long form podcast. They've gone into a lot of audio stuff, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I love narrative on fiction, but what, okay. So what did you like about it? Cause I, what I like is I want to, okay, I'm just nosy and I just want to know about stuff and people's <laughs> lives. And if you can do this in a narrative on fiction form, then I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, so what's the question? <laughs> oh, what what narrative nonfiction got you hooked? Because I don't think it's a thing that people read generally. Yeah. Maybe? Um, I don't know. I don't I don't know. Um, that's a really interesting question. 
It was, you know, honestly, it was, I, when I was a kid, I would read like Irma Bombeck and, mm. um, and, and back then the only kind of narrative nonfiction that we really had because memoir hadn't exploded as a genre until no. like early nineties, yes. like late eighties. Um, so the only kind of narrative nonfiction we had was the humor, you know, mm. Garrison Keillor and yes. Irma Bombeck. And, yeah. and I think that was probably my way in, but it wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for someone who would really blow my mind with their vulnerability and let me know that in sharing their shame, it was okay for me to be mm -hmm. the human being that I was. And that's what I wanted. And it was, it was interesting, you know, and it was, it was a process of discovery with the blog that, you know, I would blog, 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 you know, lots and stuff, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, you know, writing about my life. And then I would blog something about debt mm -hmm. or about um, uh, depression mm -hmm. and the blog would blow up. So I learned you know, those were the ones that would go viral. Right. As the more vulnerable I became online, the more people leaned in to listen. And that's when I learned, you know, it's a whole Brene Brown right. um, yes. experience of like, when you speak shame, it can't survive when right. it is met with empathy. And mm -hmm. that's what it's met with. And I think that's what I love so much about it. And, and there's just so much great stuff out there now. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's just the most exciting time. That's so interesting. Cause I just watched that Ted talk again yesterday and I haven't seen it in years. And a friend of mine then texted me subsequently, we had gone to whatever, uh, we went to the Netflix taping cause you know, I live here, but, um, that was the last time I've, well, I've seen her a couple of times, um, speak, but I have been revisiting, actually I'm listening to her book in the car this right now. Oh, I've been revisiting cool. her because I've been thinking more about shame and vulnerability Again, like it's, it's, it seems like a layered sort of idea. Like the first time I read it, I read, I was reading about vulnerability. I was like, oh my God, like this is, it blew my mind. This was maybe five or six years ago. And then um, in the last couple of weeks I have been, I woke up one day and I was like, I think I want to, I think I want to visit this again. Um, and so then I took out the books. Um, I think I have Braving the Wilderness on the Shelf because I went to a talk where she handed, where they gave out that book. So it must've been for oh, that, cool. on that tour. And then right now, um, I'm reading. I'm reading. I'm starting. From, I'm starting from the beginning again, and thinking a lot about shame and vulnerability because shame can't survive. It can't survive the light, and yeah. it's just so interesting because I'm. I have a friend that's going through a shame spiral. Like I shouldn't. I won't oh. talk about it. But it's just I'm watching it, and it's just. But she's not alone. That's the thing. Is that nobody does this stuff alone. We've you know people have gone through what she's going through. And when and the more she learns that, the more, the better she'll feel. Right, but I don't think that she's at that place yet. So I, yeah, you know, I yeah, just have to yeah. sort of, I just sort of step back. But I've been thinking a lot about how. I think I, yes, I want to live. I was thinking to somebody the other day. I just want to be able to be brave and be vulnerable. Like those are the two things yeah. I'm aspiring to now. Um, but those are beautiful. That's absolutely gorgeous. But I do. Yeah. So I've been rereading because I wanted, when I first read her books, I wanted a more prescriptive approach. I'm going to be frank. And I was like, okay, but can you give me three bullet points on what to do tomorrow? <laughs> right, right. And I, right. they're not those books. And I kept yeah. that. I, that was a huge struggle for me in reading her. But now that I'm reading her again, I'm like, oh, I don't need a prescription. I just need to understand the oh. underlying concepts and then I can yeah. live accordingly. And, and also you have the superpower of being a writer. Like there, there, we are able to express ourselves mm -hmm. in writing in a way that non-writers are not able to. And I just don't know how anybody processes this stuff without writing. I thought about know? that. I yeah. thought about that because I had to write something down and I, I was writing something to someone and I was like, I can express everything I want to say in writing. Yeah. That, that's not a problem. Speaking, eh. but you know, 
but at least I have that tool to yeah. be able to express things in a succinct, cogent way that, right. you know, deals with empathy and, and compassion. That's Yeah, exactly. That's how, And that's actually how I get to what I know I believe. I have to write my way there. I don't understand it until I write it. No, so I don't know how other people no. process things. That's actually a thing. I, I don't either. I was thinking about today no. and I was like, I, but I, this week I needed to process something and it took me like three days and I wrote it and it wasn't, it was like only 800 words. And I was like, okay, but now it's, a, I succinctly understand where I am. I can say this in like 15 words now that I wrote 800 yes. to figure it out, but I was so happy to get to a conclusion you know, it's just about compassion and empathy and the same things, but it's just specific. And I was like, look at this. I have reached a conclusion and I, exactly. and I feel good. I feel yeah, good with exactly. it. Um, <laughs> thinking yourself out of a box. So what, oh, there's so many, oh, okay. Oh, so many questions. What is it that, okay. So having written quite a few books, um, as I was scrolling through the website, I was like, oh, I'm going to keep scrolling. I keep scrolling. What is this I going for? I, I think I'm about to 26 or 27 now. Not, not like, I know you have more. No, um, I don't. But, I, I just oh. finished 25. Oh, yay. So we're right about the same level. Yeah. Yes. And I'm, um, I'm actually taking a break. I haven't written for like 10 days and I don't know. The world may... I have, I haven't either with the whole move. I haven't written, a, I've written a, a few little things, but mm. for the last few weeks, I just haven't done anything. And the world hasn't come to an end. So I'm just, thinking, exactly. it's weird. It's, yeah. It is weird. I was like, what's going to happen? Like somebody was like, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. Like I woke up this morning. I thought, huh. <laughs> and then I looked yeah, at, yeah. and then I looked on your website. I was like, well, that's what I'll do. <laughs> I'll do something. <laughs> So having written, okay, so let me, oh, so many questions. As you think back about your canon, let's just say, call it that, <laughs> what is it in retrospect? Because, you know, you, you can only see what you can see. Maybe you can see the future. I can't. Sorry. Um, what is the story that you think you've been trying to tell? Oh, I, I, I know the answer to that. <laughs> it is all, it's always... Um... The story that I'm trying to tell is always about chosen family, especially when it comes to mothers and daughters. That's mm-hmm. that's it comes out even in my romances when I'm re- writing like a, a heteronormative romance. It, mm-hmm. It's something in there will will come out, and that's what I always cycle back to. Um, my mom is no longer with us, but she was my best friend, and and um, and I have an adopted daughter, and that's that's just where my heart lies. Mm-hmm. So even when I try to write something that isn't about that something happens and um hush little baby that just came out is about a mother trying to protect her daughter who is uh, somebody is trying to take her away from her Mm -hmm. so that's just that's just what and stolen things same thing you know a mother trying to protect her 16 year old (laughs) daughter and that that's that's my core story and i always always cycle back why um because i think it's it's um one it is I believe it's the most primal relationship and it's one that I don't totally understand Mm -hmm. and I won't ever understand. I, you know, I never wanted to have, um, children myself, Mm -hmm. um, physically. Uh, so I think I'm always trying to understand my way there and I really miss my mom. So it is a way for me to try to find her and understand her. And I never really understood her. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's this open, these open loops that I'm probably going to spend the rest of my life as a writer trying to, trying to close. That's so interesting. So I do have a child and I I talked about him in the last podcast, but he's 11 now and he's a boy. And I don't think, look, I had a baby. I wasn't thinking that deeply. Like I, I never (laughs) thought about the mother son relationship, but I think about it a lot now. Yeah, I bet you do. Because it's, 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 I'm now discovering like it's a very unique thing. 
I'm not mm-hmm. sure why, but it's really a unique thing. So in my son's school, they have something called mom and boy sports, not this year, obviously. Right. But in the spring or fall or whatever it is, they have, I don't know, every Tuesday or whatever it was, we spent an hour and a half playing sports and it's all the boys from third or third to sixth or fourth to sixth grade and their moms. And my so cute. son loves it. So the first time we show up when he was finally eligible, because, you know, the beginning grades, he wasn't. And we're sitting on the floor in a big circle and he sat on my lap and there were sixth graders singing in their mother's laps. And I was like, okay, this is the whole thing. And he looks at me like we're going, driving home afterwards and he goes, oh, so I'm not the only boy who really loves his mom. Oh my God, that's so cute. And I thought, no, it's a thing. But he had never <gasps> thought about it because, you know, children. It's a that's awesome. adorable. And I thought, oh, so it's a very special relationship, but I don't know. I don't know what it means. Although... Speaking of which, the story I told you in the beginning about that guy, it turns out I did not know about mother enmeshed men. <laughs> turns out. Oh, so yeah. then I read a book called Married to Mom. It's about mother enmeshed men. And I had to read that book and I was like, oh, so this goes one of two ways. <laughs> Either it's healthy or not. Or it's really not healthy. But yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how I got all of these years without having met anybody like that. But I guess it is what it is. <laughs> I dated I dated a few of those and it was not pretty. Well, I didn't know. Like, I was like, <laughs> what's going on? I was like, I don't understand. Like, I literally didn't understand. And then I had to, my friend's like, he's a mama's boy. I was like, that's a thing? I was like, I thought it was just a thing people sort of talked about as a kid. She's like, no, it continues to be a thing. So then I like, I'm at the library frantically searching and I found this book and read it. And then I realized it's a whole thing. It's a deep attachment that is like, it's, it's psychological in nature. And just like, we can't, we're not going to fix those people. No, (laughs) no, but I'm sorry. I was just, I read a book for everything. So whenever I don't understand anything, I'm at the library, like a lunatic going, well, there's got to be a book that explains it. And 99% of the time there is. Um, So that has just been fascinating. So can I ask you, do you read nonfiction other than memoirs? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, Actually, like, what what have I just read recently? Um, I love, I pretty much love all nonfiction and all memoir and Mm. most fiction. Um, But this year I've been blown away by um, a couple of pretty much nonfiction less memoir uh why fish don't exist mm-hmm. was fantastic and the secret life of groceries i could not put it down it was like okay i've never i've not read either of these turn. the secret life of groceries just blew my mind and it's a deep dive into what happens at the store and what is going on at the grocery store and what is going on in the trucks and the suppliers and the chains and the, it's incredible so um yeah i what I do is I just keep my eye open for incredible reviews mm. of books and then I throw them in my wish list and I get them from the library right. or I buy them and 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 I have this problem that I am very very uh I, I am a whore when it comes to books there's I'm always reading like 20 or 30 at a time mm. and I don't finish a lot of them if they don't keep me then I don't finish right. them but but I've always got a lot on the go for, for whatever mood I might be in. Wow. I try to keep it down to six yeah. or seven. Like I just added a book to Goodreads today and I thought, oh, they don't even fit on the page. Like I was <laughs> like, and I was like, oh, I got to go back to that other one. Like how, what happened? Like, I don't, you know, Yeah. but I'm yeah. always reading quite a few at the time because it depends on what it's probably the, my inability. So it's not like, what is going to grab me right at this moment? And then I do that and then I wander away and then cook or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. So, oh, okay. So do you read, this is like a random question. This is my, 
about mostly about me because I'm thinking about myself. Do you not read? Okay, right now, my nonfiction reading mainly has to do with things I don't understand. I'm looking for explanations. It used to be more an exploration into life. Like, oh, well, you're going to talk about, like, say, The Secret Life of Groceries. I'm like, oh, that's a thing I didn't know about. Or like the one that was yeah. about that, the woman's, it wasn't so much a memoir, but it was about um, school lunch. I had read her blog and then it became a book. And I sort of read that. And it's just sort of like I got into a thing where I was interested in school lunch and what had happened, you know, over time since I last went to school, which is, you know, a million years ago. And so it it was more like just interesting little forays into other areas of life about which I didn't know anything. And I'm always interested and curious about everything. So I'll just read to find that. But lately, and this is probably age, I'm reading more to find answers. to yeah. questions like existential questions not finding answers to like you know how to knit like that I have but but, yeah. but yeah 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 but more existential questions right now I'm into trauma so I just read um oh so there's a Oprah book that just came out called I think what happened to you Mm, and um, Brian Perry was the co-author with her. Um, the book is told, not told, it's written in a mm, conversational format, I think. I don't even yeah. know the word, proper word for that. And so that was interesting. But I was like, what else did he write? And he wrote a book called The Boy Who Lived Life as a Dog or something. I'm going to get that wrong. But it was a lot about trauma. And then mm. also The Teenage Brain, which is also an, another neuroscience book. Actually, I read them I was reading them both at the same exact time and they were citing the same studies. And it was just sort of oh, interesting because she was writing about basically why teenagers are rational and crazy <laughs> because their brain is not fully formed. Yeah, and then yeah. also, you know, examining that. And it was a little bit prescriptive in how as a parent to talk to your child, um, to talk them through that. It was fascinating because I looked at my son. So she gives this example in the book about some girl who's like really quite drunk, like, you know, on the alcohol poisoning, getting there. Mm-hmm. And her teenage son and some friends drove. So she is an MD, but that's, I don't think that's a primary issue. She's maybe a neuroscientist, mainly does research. So the, the teenagers drive the, the girl to her house and they're like, what do we do? <laughs> and so I was like, are you kidding me? And they're like 20 or 19 or 20. They were old yeah. enough, you know, to know better. I, I thought maybe not. And so I look at my child and I give him the example. We're driving in the car because she's like, you got to play these scenarios out with your children. So whenever things like this happen, you know, you read the paper and it's like teenagers did something stupid. And then you play the scenario with your children. So my my son's only 11. So I figured, eh. So we're sitting in the car and I describe this thing about how somebody who's like really drunk comes over and what do you do? And he was like, he had all these thoughts, but it was the same exact things that teenagers did. They're like, well, poke her and then ask her if she's okay. And if she's talking, maybe she's okay. And then maybe like <laughs> give her some water and all of these things. And I looked at him, I'm like, dial 911. <laughs> See, and I was a 911 dispatcher for some years. <laughs> and I know all the stupid things people do. And generally what teenagers do is they take that alcohol poisoned teenager and put them on a lawn yes. in front of their parents' house and then doorbell ditch. Yes. <laughs> and that's, the- that's what they do. They all do it. They all in every city in the nation. That's what they do. <laughs> oh my God. So I was just like, huh. And so I told him, I'm like, so now 911 is the answer to that question. And he, and we're done with that conversation. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, I didn't know you were a dispatcher. Is this not? Wait, I don't read the backs of books either. Oh, I'm awful. I only read from chapter one need, to the end, either. and so that's I, what I do. I don't want to know anything about it. Yeah, that's where uh, that's where stolen things came from. It was finally the dispatcher book that I wanted to write um, because being inside the policing industry, I was only in the policing industry for seven years, and mm-hmm. then I saw the corruption and the racism, and I got the hell out and went just to fire and medical. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why I wrote stolen things. 
was. Okay, from, how did from, you from end from up with that job? That's like the most random thing. It was. I, w- I wanted to do some, after I got my master's, I wanted to do anything that would make me good money that had nothing to do with creativity. Okay. Um, and I also, when I realized that 911 was hiring, mm-hmm. I thought like, oh, that'll be the most fascinating way to hear the most stories all at once. And I'll be able to write about them for the rest of my life. Yes. And it's true. And I'm still, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> I have so many of them stockpiled. And the other thing is as a writer, like 911 dispatchers only get the beginning of the story. Right. They get the, they get the very first. Oh, you get the inciting the, incident. <laughs> you get the inciting incident, the worst day of this person's life as it starts, but you never, because of HIPAA rules right. and they're really good reasons, you never get the endings. So as a writer, I get to write the endings. Um, there, I, I wrote a book called Pack Up the Moon, which was about a a man whose nine-year-old son was dying of a terrible disease and he decides he can't live without this child and he um, takes him in the garage and asphyxiates, you know, with the, with the exhaust mm-hmm. um, and the child dies, but he comes, he, he's safe. Right. Um, and then the book actually starts five years later when they pick up and like, how does this family go on? Mm-hmm. But he goes to jail for a while. And, and I wrote it because that was a horrifying thing that I heard happen in one of my cities that I dispatched for in the fire department. And it was just, you know, different genders. It was a mom and her daughter, but I just could never get over that thought of like, so you choose to leave the world because you can't live without your child. And then you're woken up and you must be punished for it. And you have to live like, that's just the worst thing I've ever heard. So I had to write a book about it to fix it. Wow. Okay. You can't fix that, but you know, to fix, to at least give them a hopeful ending. So yeah. Okay. So so when I was reading your book about this, so is it really, I don't want to say it, it sounds like a lot of jobs like fire or anything where it's a lot of boredom and then adrenaline. Yeah. That's all it is, is absolute boredom. And then 100% adrenaline, and then back again. No sleep. I didn't sleep for 17 years. <laughs> well, no, because then, so I'm reading, so I'm, okay, so I'm reading the book. And I was thinking about the, the training process. So is the training process extent, because it seems like a, okay, there's not many jobs that involve life or death. And right, right. I mean, even when I did criminal defense, like people could go to jail, but it wasn't like. It no, was- if my thing, if my finger slipped or if I heard something wrong, somebody would die, you know, and. And and the training process is just on the job. It takes about six months to a year of just sitting next to your trainer oh. and trying to do the best you can when somebody just got shot in the head and you've got to figure out what to do next mm-hmm. to get them the help and also to, you know, try to catch the suspect or whatever. Right. And um and it's and it's intense, but then there is a lot of boredom also. And you know, um in the middle of the night, your dispatchers are just paid to stay awake when it's quiet. Like so a lot of my coworkers would um, watch TV or they would knit or scrapbook or whatever. And I was writing. So I, I would use that time to my advantage too. And my, you know, my bosses knew that's what Mm. I did. I was, I wrote, I published, I probably published my first 12 or 13 books while I was still working full time. Wow. This is so interesting. Cause I used to, I had a job as a telephone operator, um, as my summer job in college. Um, and part of that, like at night, nobody calls. I mean, you know, people don't only need so much operator help, but you can't not be there. Um, so that's when I, I read, I read so much. I read a lot. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of dispatchers read a lot. Okay. So then I have, did you do dispatching in the era of cell phones then? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually I was in the terrible era of cell phones because now it's a little bit more pinpointed. Although honestly, cell phones will never get a, a 100% accurate location. You need to know where you are right. at all times. Um, but when, when cell phones first started, like people expected you to be able to find you, but I live in the Bay area mm-hmm. and it was, it was made. So in the Bay area, your cell phone call used to always go to CHP first and CHP would say, what right. city do you need? Because every dispatch agency is different, right. you know, like for this city's got one, this city's got one. And then they would transfer you, but CHP, you could be on hold for five to 10 minutes. 
um, before they would be able to answer your phone because it was so busy. Mm. So people would be screaming and literally dying and unable to get through on their cell phones. Is it better so, now? Like, I literally don't know. It's, it's better. It's not perfect. Um, we're in something called phase three mm-hmm. of actually trying to get uh, locations. But it, if I'm just going to say this for your listeners, if you have a landline in your house and something goes wrong, always, always dial 911 from the landline. This, always. I just plugged don't it even, in during the pandemic because I couldn't figure out the plug configuration because it was mucky. Yeah. And don't I, even think about using your cell phone if you have a landline. If you, ha- if you don't have a landline, like most people don't. I don't have a landline mm. even, um, then just, this is my PSA, um, have programmed into your phone, the seven, the, the 10 digit emergency number for both your police and your fire, which is going to be fire medical, which right. is probably going to be different. Right. So for me, like I had this medical emergency, um, I had taken this, I, I was really sick at the beginning of January and they gave me some painkillers that really messed me up. And I had to call my own cause I was having chest pain. Um, and I knew to tell my wife, Dial 510-444-1616 because that will dial directly into Oakland fire and medical. And it won't go to police. There will be no transferring. There's no state to be involved. Um, So know those things. Everyone has a 10-digit emergency number for the city you live in. Okay. I'm going to, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not to scare anybody. No, no, no. Fastest, because I've always. It's the fastest way to get help. I've always wondered about that now because I was, I just assumed I still, I didn't know about the non, I, I assume the CHP thing was still enforced. I just wondered what people did in emergencies now, but I don't, I, I don't think about it every day. I probably thought about it six years. Right, right. It's supposed to go to the right agency, but normally it will go to PD first, mm-hmm. to police first, right. and then police, if it's just a medical, then you have to be transferred. So now you've slowed down your call anyway, especially in Oakland, the city I live in, that again can be a five minute hold if you call 911 right. and it goes to Oakland PD. Because wow. so, we don't have a fast, rest- so I live in the city of Los Angeles and the response yeah. time is not fast. I'm going to be honest. Right. I think they, right. I think it got down from 14 to like 12 minutes and that was good. Oh, that's Well, awful. we have traffic and it's spread out. I mean, I don't know what to yeah. say to you. Like it is what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but then the lag, I hadn't thought about the lag time of the call before you get to that. And I mean, and, and that was just such a heartbreaking thing to deal with these people who like, you know, my husband hasn't been breathing for six minutes now and nobody could tell me what to do. And they're so upset and they're so furious. And all you all you can do is heartbreak and give them the CPR instructions and hope that he makes it. But um, yeah. Okay. So that, so. I thought my job was yeah. hard and maybe it wasn't. No, I mean, I felt a lot of pressure when people, when you're waiting for a jury to come back with a verdict. That's also, that's also pressure. But it's but yeah, I'm, different. I'm, I've been a full-time writer now for five years and I sleep at night every night. It's the best thing ever. I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. Do you miss? Uh, I, no. <laughs> I don't miss a single thing. Honestly, the calls were never stressful. Um, you just kind of get used to them. But the, the thing that was stressful is spending that much time in a dispatch center. Like, And for the last five years of my career, I lived in the firehouse. So we worked 48-hour shifts. Oh. So we would I would work for 48 hours, and then I would have four days off, which was great for a writer. Right. But during those 48 hours, though, you're, you have, you're living with roommates. I'm living with all the firefighters and the other dispatchers. And, you know. Oh, Past 22. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> oh. Gosh, I can't imagine how that would inform your life so differently than mine. Oh my gosh. Okay. It gives you good stories. It does. Because I was thinking about when I was reading your book, I was thinking about, oh, the thing about a fire being leaving being a fireable offense. Yeah, you can't, you cannot get up out of your chair and leave. There was a, there was a great, there was a great moment actually. One time I was at, when I was still with PD and some guy came and dynamited off the front doors of the building, mm-hmm. um, just in the middle As of the night. As one does. As one does. And I'm in the, I'm in the 
the police building mm-hmm. and, and you know all the cops are out and um it's me and my other dispatcher in the center mm-hmm. and the other dispatcher like the whole building shakes and we see on the camera that the front doors have been blown off and and um and my the dispatcher i was working with she gets up and she walks into the kitchen mm-hmm. and then she walks out of the kitchen and sits down and starts dispatching people in to like you know get the right response right. to the station and later i said like what were you doing she's like girl i was leaving i just went <laughs> the wrong way <laughs> I was like, well, good, because you would have lost your job. <laughs> but that's the human response. And I have a human response to, to um, disaster. I don't run toward it. You know, mm-hmm. like firefighters and police, police officers are a weird breed that they, you know, like hear the explosion, and they run toward it. Right. A normal human being runs away from it. And I still have that response. <laughs> that's fascinating. Okay. So I have to thank you so, so much for doing this. Um, it has been such oh, it's been so fun to talk a to pleasure you. to talk to you. I wish you so much luck with your move. I have so many questions, but I won't ask them now um, because most of my friends who've moved abroad, the biggest issue is the the container that they're going to put their stuff in. <laughs> we are doing, we're just taking 60 small, like book size boxes mm-hmm. and we've gotten rid of everything else. And most of those boxes are books or like my journals, but everything we're going with one, like one or two suitcases each. I think I could do it in one suitcase. My wife's going to take two suitcases. Okay. Because I, <gasps> so ultimately, so I'm only here in for six, seven more years. God, it was like six more years. Like it was so many more years before. And I just looked <laughs> up and time is just right, right. moving by, but I have a debate about, so I have a fully furnished place. Uh, See, we, we live like college students. Like our house was fully furnished, but it was full of junk, oh. like junk, like Craigslist junk. Cause mm. we're, we're, we're kind of cheap and mm. uh, we were broke for so long. So it really was not a hardship to get rid of the old couch that like four dogs died on. You know? oh. So <laughs> I'm really struggling. So my apartment, I'm going to be honest, is all like Ikea furniture because I had to furnish yeah. it in a short period of time for a bunch yeah. of reasons. And, uh, but my real house is real furniture. <laughs> and I, yeah, well, um, every night I think, but do, is it really critical that I bring my real furniture, but I love it. So, and <laughs> if you love it, bring it. We found you pack, we ship mm-hmm. P-A-K, right. is definitely the cheapest. And every, all the expats are saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think we're getting it done for like under $4,000. Okay. I'm writing this down yeah. because I have to yeah. actually, you pack, we ship, um, ship my ex's stuff from the apartment. And yeah, if yeah. I can get there this summer, I don't know. I got to go look at tickets again. Um, then that's what I'll be doing. And I, just, I, it's just, it's one of those projects where I'm like, well, that's a project. <laughs> it's such a, such a huge project. Yeah. Oh my God. So, oh, I have, okay. Good luck. Congratulations. It was such a thrill to talk to you. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I love talking to you. I wish you so well. I wish you great things. It'll be spectacular. It will be spectacular. Thank you. Thank you. Keep, keep me posted on you. Absolutely. Okay, bye. bye. This has been A Time to Thrill with me, your host, author, Amy Austin. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It will help others to find and listen to my conversations with brilliant creators. Also, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. In addition to hosting this podcast, I'm also the author of the Casey Court series of legal thrillers. They're available wherever books are sold, your local library, and also an audiobook. You can follow me on Instagram at ThrillerPod, find me on Facebook at Casey Court Series, or A Time to Thrill. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with you soon with more great conversations.